Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, but before we do, I thought it might be good just to review a little bit of, of where we've been so far in our story, working through the New Testament book of Acts. This is our 28th week. We started it back in September, and we're going to probably be in it until again, almost this time next year before we finally finish it. So uh, let's just cover a little bit where we've been. You know, we started off, the book of Acts really tells the story of the continuation of everything Jesus began to do and teach. And uh, Jesus, this man from this area right in here called Galilee, uh, changed the world. And uh, because of of, uh, his ministry, he is the God-man. And he goes to Jerusalem where eventually he's murdered because he wouldn't quit telling people and speaking to the fact that he's God. And so they murdered him on the cross. And uh, some of the Jewish leaders in that day um, really reveled in this fact, but the church began to grow after his resurrection and then his ascension earlier in the book of Acts where he left his disciples and said, you're gonna be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're gonna go out and Acts traces then that pattern as the disciples go out to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Well, it really begins in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there's a lot of opposition to the early church and to the Christians. And in fact, um, there was one young guy by the name of uh, Paul, who uh, Paul, and and actually his name was Saul at the time, in his ministry, uh, he was a devout guy. He was part of the Sanhedrin, probably not uh, maybe of a highest seat, but kind of a upshot lawyer, so to speak. That was Saul, this young guy. And uh, he had a Hall of Fame career ahead of him. That was Saul. And he saw uh, during this time in Acts chapter eight, the stoning of a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen was a leader in the early church and he gave testimony to Jesus Christ and he was stoned and murdered for his faith. And Saul standing there approved of it. Now, Saul was devout. He loved God and and wanted to honor God in every way, even to the point that if uh, there was a threat from these people who were saying that Jesus is the Messiah, he would do anything to stop it in his zeal, even if it meant killing others for that. And so Saul kind of takes on the role of the hitman. He becomes the early church or the the hitman of, of the Jewish leaders against the early church. And he sets out on his way then at one point in Acts chapter nine toward the city of Damascus. He leaves Jerusalem and heads towards Damascus. Except something happens right before he gets there. 
a bright light shines around him and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What are you doing? He had taken on this role really as a desire to please God and to honor God and to serve him. But now he gets knocked down to the ground, blinded, and he hears God. He hears Jesus say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my people? And Saul is radically changed. And after this, uh, he comes to faith in Christ and he spends the next decade or more uh, just off uh, really by himself in a little city where he grew up called Tarsus. And uh, during this time, he's, he's learning more and more about how everything he had learned and believed in the Old Testament ultimately pointed forward to Jesus. And he starts to reconcile his newfound faith with all the things he had learned. And he was an expert in the Old Testament and he was devout and he loved God and now he loved Jesus. Well, uh, after his time in Damascus, uh, he goes to Tarsus for a while. And fast forward then, again, about a decade, there was a, a church in the city of Antioch. And in Antioch, there was a guy by the name of Barnabas who uh, is leading the early church there. And he thinks to himself in Acts chapter 11, you know, I know a perfect guy to help me. A guy who knows all kinds of stuff about the Old Testament, who knows uh, all kinds of stuff about religious law. And he's a Roman citizen. And he sends for Saul. And he gets him and he brings him to Antioch. And the church there begins to grow. And, and Saul moves into a leadership position in this early church. And for the first time ever, they're called Christians in this little city of Antioch. And then the Holy Spirit, uh, while they're praying and worshiping, says, I want you to send off Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, Paul is just his Greek name, to go out and accomplish what I've sent them to do. And so they take off and uh, you saw the little line. They, they leave and they sail along with a guy by the name of John Mark to the island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from. And they spread the gospel and they get to the, end of the other end of the island and they, they interact with this Roman official who kind of oversaw the entire island. They end up uh, blinding one of his sorcerers who was trying to interpret, or excuse me, interrupt the meeting. And amazing things start happening. Well, uh, this whole island comes to see the power and love of Jesus because of their ministry. And then we saw how uh, from Paphos, they crossed over the Mediterranean Sea uh, to a city called Perga. And from Perga, they made their way north up into the mountainous region of Antioch, another Antioch, same name, different place. And in this region, we have this really long speech of Saul, of Paul in Acts chapter 13. And he goes into the synagogue and he preaches at the invitation of the leaders there. And what's curious is uh, in this time, he's, he's in a place where there is incredible, in, incredible division in their culture. There's corruption, there's uh, there's people who are um, opposing the gospel. It's politically divided and it's racially divided. And there's all kinds of angst going on in the culture here when Paul gets to this region. Does that sound familiar? And this is the place where Paul goes. All of these things are happening. And what he does is he gets up to preach and you might think, well, what's he preach about? You can read about it in Acts chapter 13. What's curious is he doesn't preach about the overreach of government. He doesn't. 
He doesn't preach about the racism of the day. He doesn't preach against political aspirations or anything else happening. Do you know what he preaches? He preaches Jesus. And he says, here's the good news. All of this that you're putting your trust in and divided over and all these things happening in the world, uh, you just need to lay that aside and turn to Jesus. He's really the only ultimate answer to all of this. And he preaches that in Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins and that we can be freed from anything that nothing else is able to free us from. He preaches Christ, how he sent Jesus and, and, and to show what we're to live like. And, and he goes and he just starts preaching. He's like, let me show you this God who came, not just to forgive your sins, but to make you righteous and justified, to make you new, to give you hope in life. And the city believed, half of it did, but half of it didn't. And finally, uh, the ones who didn't got the magistrates of the city and the rulers of the city on their side and they kicked them out of town. And that's where we ended chapter 13 with Paul and Barnabas uh, leaving Antioch and taking their sandals and tapping the dust off them on their way out. They're like, hey, if, you, if you're not gonna let us be with you, we're not taking anything. If you're gonna treat us that way, we're not taking anything of you with us when we go. So we're dusting off our sandals like Jesus told us to do and we're heading on. And so they took off and they leave and they uh, go east to another little city called Iconium by way of this mountain pass. And that's where we pick up the story today in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, John Mark has gone back to Jerusalem by now. So it's just Paul and Barnabas and they go on to this little city of Antioch. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 14. We're gonna pick it up there. But before we do, uh, I kind of called an audible this morning and decided I'm just going to give you my whole sentence right at the beginning. Sound good? So let me just give it to you, all your fill-ins. So if you're really OCD, this is the part you want to pay attention to. Here's your fill-in. When the world is full of chaos, opposition, and division, our job is to remain faithful. That's our job. It's to remain faithful and to point people to Jesus. Not to start arguments, not to cause more division, but to point people to the only hope, including each other in this room. And then leave all the fruit, leave all the results to God. So when we're facing a world, when the world's full of chaos, opposition, and division, our job is to be faithful and point people to Jesus, leaving the results to God. Amen? Hey, you know what? Let me pray. And then we're gonna be in Acts chapter 14 and unpacking some of this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd, you'd help me as I teach your word this morning. Help each of us to understand it, uh, what you've written, to understand too how to apply it to our own lives. Thanks for the example of Paul and Barnabas as they go out into a culture not at all unlike ours, full of division, full of angst, full of chaos, full of opposition to their message. And help us, Lord, learn from the ways that, that they went about things so that we would do the same and, and uh, go into our world, go into our culture, be sent into it, loving people with grace and with mercy and letting you do the work of, of convicting people of sin and bringing them to faith. Help us be faithful. 
Help me today, I pray, Holy Spirit. And uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got your Bible, buckle up. Here we go, Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, that's where they are now, right? They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, uh, what's curious is Acts chapter 13 gives us a long example of what Paul said when he was in the synagogue. And really that doesn't happen again in the book of Acts. So every time we read about Paul going into the synagogue and preaching and teaching God's word, if we're like, well, what did he say? What did he talk about? Go back to Acts chapter 13 and you'll know his message. And it's that that it was all about Jesus. That's what he preached. He preached Jesus. And so that's what he does here. And he does it in, in such a way it was convincing, it was winsome, it was many people believed, both Jewish people and the Greeks and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But just like in Antioch, where you just come from, some people believed, but other people didn't. Look at verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Wow. Uh, they, they poisoned their minds. It, uh, imagine this. They go in, they preach the gospel. They don't like it. So what do the people who don't like it do? And they poisoned the minds of the brothers of the Gentiles. Does that happen anywhere in our culture? People just poisoning our minds with things? It happens all over. And you know what? It happens in unsuspecting places. There's some that are really obvious. Like we look at our culture and we see some things going on and, and opposition to the church and opposition to the gospel. And, and yeah, there, there is. And you know what? I don't know why we're all so surprised by that because like Jesus said, that's gonna happen. Paul wrote about it, that there would come a day where people are just gonna go and, and get what itches their ears. They're only gonna hear what they wanna hear. And yet we go, oh, I can't believe it. Jesus said it was gonna happen. And he said it was gonna happen. And he said, when it happens, pay more attention because that means I'm coming sooner. So instead of a discouragement, in some ways, that's an encouragement. Hey, Jesus is coming soon. But they poison the minds of people. And this happens not just culture, culturally, but you know what happens even within the church? That, that sometimes we hear things from culture. Like, let me just say, you got your toes out, I'm gonna jump on them. Not just step, jump. Like, if you spend all your time watching MSNBC, your mind's getting poisoned. If you spend all your time watching Fox News, your mind is getting poisoned and maybe in a more subtle way than you realize. The business model of things like this in our culture is to get you riled up and to poison your mind and to get you full of angst and division and fired up, and what happens then is we think all these people are throwing rocks, and so you know what we do? We go, well, I'm gonna pick up a rock too. Here, let me give this back to you. And we throw it at them. In what way is that Christ-like? Some of you need to turn off your TV. You maybe need to delete your social media. 
Because if you're a Christian and interacting with these things, you know what that means by being called a Christian? Remember we said in the other Antioch they were called Christians for the first time? If you're gonna be a Christian, that means you act like Christ. Not just in your words and actions, but in your thoughts. How are you thinking about people? How are you responding to things? Is it like Jesus? Or is it just, I got hit with a rock, I'm gonna throw it back. Their minds were poisoned against the brothers. And it happens in so many ways, so many subtle ways. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? Well, let's keep reading. So therefore, they stayed longer. (laughs) Because of all the poison, because of all the division, they decided we're gonna stay longer with these people. And they kept speaking boldly for the Lord again. Not against every ill in the world, but for Jesus. Are you known more for what you're for and who you're for or more by what you're against? I would challenge you, be known by who you're for, not only what you're against. And we're for Jesus. Who bore the witness, bore witness to the word of his grace, by granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. One of the ways God proved that their message was true is Paul and Barnabas start doing signs and wonders and it confirmed some of the things that they were saying. But still, verse four, the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, and to stone them, they learned of it. I don't know how they learned of it. Maybe somebody came along uh, and said, hey, Paul, Barnabas, you need to know they're plotting against you. We're like, yeah, that's normal. We're used to that. No, but they got the rulers of the city involved now. They're going to stone you. You, you got to flee. And so they learn of it and they take off. And they leave. And they flee to, to Lystra and Derby cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country. And there though, you might think, well, there then they just hunkered down and kept quiet for a while, right? No, there they continued to preach the gospel, to faithfully point people to Jesus. When everything had gone full chaos, when there was so much opposition, what did they do? They just, they were faithful to point people to Jesus. In our culture, listen, I, I hate to tell you this, but I just want to be truthful. It's, it's going to get worse. The Bible says so. So what are you going to do? Well, let's learn from Paul and Barnabas and just continue to faithfully do what? Point people to Jesus. He's the only hope. He's our only hope. Faithfully point people to Jesus. Uh, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Let me show you where Lystra is. Uh, there's Iconium. Lystra is just a short jaunt away uh, to the south and southwest just a bit. Now at Lystra, there was a man. Look at what happens here. Paul's life, man, I'm telling you, it is just full of crazy stuff happening as he follows the Lord. At Lystra, there was a man sitting who couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never 
walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet, get up. Come on, get up, man. And he sprang up and he began walking. Can you imagine? Imagine somebody you know maybe who's, who's crippled or uh, can't walk or has some other ailment physically and uh, Jesus just radically heals them in that moment. And suddenly they're just totally back to normal and healthy. Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, when the crowd saw this happen, it was a pretty big reaction. Look at what they said. They lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us like the likeness of men. Now it's, it's, it's important. Luke points out that they spoke in their own language at this moment, not in a language that Paul and Barnabas knew. And they just, they, they get fired up. Hey, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Paul and Barnabas just thought, wow, this is a pretty, they're, they're getting fired up. This is a pretty exciting reaction to a miracle, to a healing, which makes total sense, doesn't it? This guy gets healed. And then, but check this out, Barnabas and, Barnabas and Saul at this point, Paul at this point, they don't know what's going on. Uh, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. In, in Lystra, I'm gonna tell you a story here in a moment of something that all the people of Lystra would have known, but in Lystra, they had statues of Zeus and Hermes. And they had one of Hermes dedicated to Zeus. And Zeus was seen as this old, or Jupiter, as this old, wise, kind of reserved God, Greek God, right? And Hermes then was a young guy who was kind of the mouthpiece. Well, uh, Barnabas and Saul, they might've kind of looked like these statues. They certainly looked like, uh, it would appear that Barnabas was likely older and Paul was younger. And Barnabas was maybe a little more reserved and sat back and watched things and observed and encouraged people. And Paul was the mouthpiece. (laughs) So they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city of Lystra, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. A parade breaks out after this guy gets healed. And they're bringing animals through in the parade. No tractors, so they brought animals. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, when they figured out what was going on, maybe uh, they just recognized all of a sudden in this moment what was happening as they brought the animals or Somebody interpreted for them what was happening. And now instead of being amazed watching, now they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying, man, why are you doing these things? They would have understood them speaking in Greek, but Paul and Barnabas didn't understand them. But but why are you doing these things? We also are men. We're of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea. And he made everything that's in them. He just, he starts, again, pointing them to Jesus, doesn't he? In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he didn't leave himself without witness. For he 
He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says something somewhere in Romans, you know, like all of us were without excuse. Like God has shown goodness and grace to everyone. And Paul takes this opportunity to point them away from himself and toward Jesus. By the way, watch out any leader who's always drawing attention to themselves. (laughs) Not somebody you want to follow. Find somebody pointing to Jesus. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. And uh, he, he satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, the peop- they, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. I told you I was going to tell you a story that they all would have known that maybe explains even more of what we just read. Everyone in Lystra would have known uh, a fable about uh, the Greek god Zeus and Hermes. And here's kind of how it goes. In fact, they knew it well in Lystra because it takes place in their city. One day, Zeus, or Jupiter, another name, uh, came in the guise of a mortal, according to this fable, as a man, as a peasant. And with him came Hermes, or Mercury is another name for him, in the same way. They came as peasants. And as they walked the streets of Lystra, we, we read that they came to a thousand homes, supposedly seeking a place for rest, but a thousand homes were shut up against them. Now, as this story is going, all the people of Lystra would have known this in this pagan culture. And you can imagine even the stories that would have been told, even at a young age, kids would have known these stories. But on the edge of town, according to the, the fable, was a peasant farmhouse with a thatched roof of straw and reeds from the marsh. Bacchus and Philemon were the names of this couple. Not to be confused with the Philemon of the Bible, of the New Testament, but another guy named Philemon, common name, and his wife Bacchus. And they were old in age, and they were married in that very cottage and supposedly spent their entire lives there. Only as poor servants, they had no, uh, no one else in their household, just them. And when the heavenly ones, the, when Zeus and Hermes came supposedly to their humble home, They stooped and entered into the door and the old man set out a bench and urged them to rest and then Bacchus threw a covering over it and the story goes on that they they, uh, made food for them and a fire and and gave them water and tea and uh, then they were gonna try to kill their only goose to sacrifice it to them for them to eat and they stopped them and said, no, don't do this. We are gods. And so because of this, you can come with us while we destroy the rest of the city and flood it, and supposedly they turned the rest of the city to frogs, according to the myth. And then uh, they asked uh, Philemon and Bacchus, what do you want us to do with your house? And they, what do you, what do you want? Ask us anything. And they said, well, uh, we would like to be uh, priests in the temple of Zeus. Because the gods told them, we're gonna take your tiny little cottage and we're gonna turn it into a, a temple of gold and marble. And we want to be priests there and we want to die on the same day so that we don't have to mourn each other's death. And he said, okay, your wish is granted. And then supposedly that's what happened. But all the people of Lystra would have known then that that's how the temple to Zeus ended up in their city. And when Paul and Barnabas come into town, they would have walked right past it. And after they heal this man and the priest of Zeus comes uh, to offer sacrifice and, and all, all kinds of excitement over this man's healing, that's where he comes from. 
from this temple on the edge of town that was supposedly, way back in the day, Philemon and Bacchus's little cottage. Now, uh, these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, come into town preaching. And on this day, they bring power and healing. And many in town see this and immediately think to themselves, Zeus and Hermes are back. I've been waiting for this day a long time. We're gonna make sure we honor them and worship them this time and don't blow it so that all of our houses can be turned to marble and gold. (laughs) And so they begin going through all these motions and there's gonna be a sacrifice. But then Paul and Barnabas step forward and like, no, don't do this, that's not true. We're, we're, We're not gods, we're people like you. Totally opposite of their fable that they believed, right? We're normal people. We're here to point you with good news to the true and living God, to Jesus. The one who's shown so much grace to you and we want you to know who he is. Well, uh, when this starts happening, you can imagine maybe among those people who were wanting to worship them as Zeus and Hermes, some angst. Maybe even some feelings of betrayal. What do you mean? That's not who you are? And all the whispers go and all the division and people get stirred up against Barnabas and Paul. And then Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and maybe they were even in town on business and they hear about all this and like, oh, we know those two. They caused a riot in our towns too. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Now, when you stone someone in the Bible, you don't do it as a warning. You do it with the aim of killing someone. And so they go after Paul. That's not who you are? Throws a rock at him and the whole crowd joins in. And then they drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, And I don't know what happens here. But he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to another town called Derby, just down the road. I don't know what happened there. Was was Paul dead and they prayed and God brought him back to life? I don't know. Was he mostly dead? Was healed? I don't know. But what is true is he faced great opposition, didn't he? And through all of it, he was faithful to do what? Point those people to Jesus. Even in the face of being stoned for what he was saying and being murdered. And then uh, we keep going. When they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. What's curious is if, uh, go back at that map, the easy way back for them, they're gonna make their way back to that original Antioch. But they cared so much about the people that they had shared the gospel with, they decide to go back into that opposition and step into it again, into those same cities. Even the one where Paul had just been, they tried to murder him because he cared so much about the disciples there. And when they had preached the gospel in Derbe and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And look how they do it. 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, I started off ranting and raving a little bit about uh, our minds being poisoned, maybe uh, toward culture, toward one another. But look at the opposite of that right here. Paul and Barnabas return back through uh, into the lion's den, so to speak. And instead of fighting at all, they, they strengthen the soul of the disciples. And how do they do that? By pointing out everything that was wrong? By posting every awful thing on their Instagram and Facebook? By stirring up the crowds? No, by just encouraging one another. And encouraging them in light of the fact that, you know what? Following Jesus is hard and it's through many trials and many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. So keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep faithfully pointing people to Jesus with grace and with mercy and with goodness. Do you see the difference? That's how they strengthen the souls of disciples. Friends, here's my concern. We're in a culture where, just turn on the news, right? Every business, like you can't shop anywhere now anymore, supposedly, according to some people, if you're really gonna follow Jesus because of the things they believe or support, or you can't go to uh, any place anymore without just being accosted. Welcome, we live in a post-Christian culture and we have for a long time, that ship sailed long ago. So how will you be faithful in a culture that's not much different from the one now in the Bible where we see men and women being faithful to Jesus? And being faithful looks like strengthening one another's souls, encouraging one another, recognizing the fact that life is hard and it's, it's maybe gonna get harder, probably gonna get harder. So how do we encourage one another to press on and keep going? Because following Jesus is worth it. And in the midst of that, recognizing we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. Just invite them. And if they don't respond, that's okay. We still love them. We still love them. Jesus, when he was being murdered, what did he say? Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Friends, don't be surprised when people who are far from God act like people far from God. You and I are the ones sent not to Bible thump them, but to love them and say, hey, there's a better way. It's Jesus. You should turn to him. Verse 23, when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. And then they passed on it just kind of gives us an overview of how they went back. They passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. They're just going backwards on that map. When they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, the original Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. 
and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They rejoiced with them in the ways that they had suffered. It's pretty incredible. I want to draw your attention to one thing here uh, before we wrap up. Uh, This whole region, let me go back to that map, is an area known as the Roman province up in this area of Galatia. Have you heard of that before? Where have you heard about it? There's a New Testament book called what? Galatians. Guess who it's written to? Paul makes his way back and he sails down and goes through Cyprus. He makes his way back to Antioch, this original one. And he loves those people so much that he had interacted with. He's like, I got to write him a letter. I got to encourage him. And he ends up writing a letter to the churches, not just to each individual church, but at some point to all the churches of Galatia that got spread around. And he knows the opposition they're facing. He knows all the crazy things happening in their world, right? Look what he writes to them. Galatians chapter five, Uh, one of the things he writes is this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use it as an opportunity to get all fired up and against everybody who's against you. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor might not know Jesus. Love them as yourself. And here's the thing though, because if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Am I the only one who in my flesh has that desire at times to lash out? Is it just me? Okay, I didn't think so. That's a desire of the flesh. So what do I need to do to not do that? Walk in the spirit. I need to walk in the spirit. For here's the desires of the flesh that are against the spirit. Desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And then he lists them. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, But sometimes we skip over these. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Those are works of the flesh as well, aren't they? And man, we live in a culture that's rife with it. So how will we be different and walk by the Spirit? Because here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's, you know who models that perfectly? Jesus does. And what's it mean to be a Christian? To be like Christ. So, uh, Paul knows the world they're living in. He he had been through it all. He knows the world we're living in. And he says, don't give in to the desires of the flesh, but walk by the spirit and yield the fruit of the spirit to a culture that desperately needs it. I had a 
one more thing. I've gone a little long. Um, but let me just share it with you briefly, and uh, you can read it on your paper. Um, but what do you do in culture as a Christian? Like, uh, how do you interact with it then? Because I can say all this all day long, but what's just some practical ways to think about it? Let me give you one uh, paradigm to think through as it relates to a, a Christian living in a culture we live in. Generally, there are three things we can do with our culture. It's important for us to gauge, engage culture with wisdom. Uh, the question is, how will you engage and will you engage with wisdom when you're sent to love? Uh, we can receive, reject, or redeem. Uh, number one, uh, there's certain things in culture we can just receive. We can receive it. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? Like God's common grace to all people that we can receive. Technology is a good example. We can receive it and use it. Uh, there's no such thing as a Christian computer. Did you know that? There's not. There's also no such thing as Christian money, Christian cars, Christian styles of music. We can just receive those things. Another response at times is there's things in culture we need to reject. Things in culture that are sinful and are not beneficial. Pornography is a good example, which has no redeeming value and must be rejected by the Christian. Other things that are clearly contrary to God's word, like homosexuality and uh, the fact that there is two genders God made, man and woman. There are certain things in terms of culture that we reject, that the culture teaches. We have to, because God's rejected it. But there's also quite a bit of culture that we can redeem. And maybe this is a helpful paradigm for you as you navigate with your own conscience just a culture that's continually getting more and more disorienting to us as we follow Jesus. There are certain things that are not bad in and of themselves, but that can be used in a sinful manner, therefore need to be redeemed by God's people. Let me ask you, is a, is a rainbow uh, sinful? No? But our culture has taken it to mean something very much the opposite of what God designed it for, which was his grace towards people who had been incredibly prideful, promising not to judge in the same way again. And now it's been taken as a symbol for pride. So what do we do with that? Does that mean I, I can't have like a rainbow pattern on my phone or anything like that? No, it means I redeem it. And remember, it's actually a promise of God's grace. God's grace to me when I'm proud and deserve his wrath. Uh, technology, social media is another example of this. Is technology bad? No. Not if you like a roof over your head or if you like air conditioning or if you like ice in your Diet Coke. Technology is pretty great. Same with a laptop, an iPad, a iPhone, social media, to say all technology or all smartphones are just all social media bad is, is kind of a false dichotomy. It's amoral, we've said that already. The morality comes from the one using it. So there's nothing inherently wrong with these things, but some of which we could include in the receive category, but we would probably be best to slot it in redeem because often it gets used in a way that is contrary to God's word. So 
how do I use it in a way then that redeems it and shows the grace of God to a culture that is royally confused and in need of Jesus? Do you see? So you can take that. Maybe that's helpful. If you have questions, I'm glad to talk more about it. Um, But for now, uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing and take communion and call it a morning. So let me pray as the worship team comes up, and then I'm going to give you some instructions for communion as we close.